Time for Seafood News. You're listening to the Seafood News Podcast, brought to you by Maine Lobster. The rocky coast of Maine is home to one of the most iconic and sustainable fisheries in the world. With 5,600 independent lobstermen from multi-generational families, the Maine lobster industry is committed to bringing sustainably harvest lobster from trap to table. To learn more about the industry's long history of sustainability, visit lobsterformaine.com. I'm news assistant Ryan Doyle. And I'm Ernerberry Seafood Market Reporter Lauren Castiglione. Thanks for joining us. In our top story of the day, a massive warm water stretching from Alaska to California currently ranks as the second largest heat wave of the last 40 years, sitting behind only the blob. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Five years ago, the blob devastated sea life along the coast and impacted salmon runs. This heat wave has grown in a similar way. It sits in the same area and is nearly the same size. There is a reason to believe another blob is on the way. <laughs> Coastal winds have kept cold water welling up along the coast to keep the warm expanse offshore, but the fall could change that. As winds wane with cooler weather, the heat wave will move onshore, as that has already happened in Washington. There is good news surrounding this marine heat wave. The size of the warm water is intimidating, but it's new and it's only affecting the upper layers of the water, which means it could break up pretty quickly. And according to NOAA's current forecast, the heat wave will moderate, but it will continue for months, which bodes the question, will it be around long enough to affect the ecosystem? The blob was the largest harmful algal bloom recorded on west on the west coast, which shut down crabbing and clamming for months, led to thousands of sea lions stranding on California beaches and multiple fishery disasters. This is something we will be monitoring closely as it seems areas have just recovered from the impact the blob, the blob made. It's really, it seems, we're reading stories, we're talking to seafood news contributors, we're saying it seems like places finally recovered, and, and then bang, this is another one's here. And Are they just going to call it? The Blob 2? I wonder I, what the, not sure what the, the name the, of the it's going to be. Gonna be. I know they had, a, in one of the stories they had that Noah released, they had the uh, the guy who named it The Blob uh-huh. was quoted there. So we might have to go back to him and see what he thinks this should or be Or we called. need to name it right or, now. Yeah, and then to... we can get, you know, some more <laughs> press for that. <laughs> um, so now it's time for an update on North Atlantic right whales, one of our favorite subjects. Mm-hmm. Last week, Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey urged Eastern Canadian premiers and governors in New England states to implement stricter regulations with the goal to protect the endangered North Atlantic right whale species. Healy wants to expand current protections to reduce vessel strikes and fishing gear entanglements. The letter came just before a meeting between Canadian premiers and U.S. governors this week. Currently, only 400 whales remain and only 95 are breeding females. With the future of the species clearly in doubt, Healy wants to make sure both countries are doing everything they can to save it. Healy highlighted a handful of statistics about how vessel strikes and the commercial fishing industry have impacted right whales. Healy highlighted the work of the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries uh, and their work over the past two decades to reduce vessel strikes and entanglements. She also suggested the use of ropeless fishing gear, which has recently received backlash from fishermen. And days before Healy placed some of the blame on the commercial fishing industry, one key member of the industry decided to withdraw from an agreement that was focused on protecting right whales. So the Maine Lobstermen's Association withdrew its support from the 2000 uh, from the April 2019 take reduction team agreement due to serious data flaws on August 30th. MLA sent a letter to Chris Oliver, the head of NOAA Fisheries, to announce its withdrawal. The MLA found that the data presented to the TRT and in the agreement process was unsound. The TRT agreement called for Maine Lobstermen to reduce its risk to right whales by 60%. Patricia McCarran, 
uh, executive director of the MLA cited data from the NMFS, which showed that the lobster fishery was the least significant cause of right whale serious injury or death. Gill nets, netting gear, pot gear, vessel strikes, and the Canadian snow crab fishery all impacted right whales more, according to that data. McCarran said the lack of data meant that the MLA would not recommend any changes to its members when whales are being entangled in gear that isn't included in current rulemaking. Meanwhile, five companies who plan on bringing cell-based cultured meat Poultry and seafood to the marketplace in the United States have formed the Alliance for Meat, Poultry, and Seafood Innovation. This alliance will focus on providing education to consumers and various stakeholders on the new industry as they prepare to bring cell-based products into supermarkets and restaurants. The founding members include Blue Nalu, who recently announced plans to build a large facility, Finless Foods, Fork and Good, Just, and Memphis Meats. All the aforementioned companies focus on growing meat outside the animal, using cells to only produce muscle, fat, skin, and connective tissue rather than the entire animal or fish. AMP's innovation's focus revolves around showing consumers that this seafood isn't an alternative protein, it's real meat. And now, Lauren, it's time to hear about the latest from the scallop market. So what do you got for us today? Yes, it is. So scallop imports into the United States fall short of last year's pace by 6.2 million pounds. But this is largely due to the influx of products coming into the country in, uh, from China in December 2018, ahead of the originally planned 25% tariff start date of January 1st, 2019. Year-to-date, January through July 2019 imports are down 24.4%, with China showing the largest decline of 5.3 million pounds since last year. With this major fall in imports from China, Canada is currently the largest scallop supplier to the United States year-to-date in 2019, accounting for roughly 29% of the 19.5 million pounds of scallops imported into the United States thus far. As always, thank you for the wonderful insight, Lauren. And now it's time for our latest update on the salmon landings in Alaska. Pink salmon landings have tapered significantly this week following two unexpectedly high catch, uh, high catch weeks in late August. Total landings statewide now stand at 122.7 million pink salmon, about 89% of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game's preseason forecast of 137.8 million. About half that amount has been landed in the last few weeks, late by a week or so compared to historical timing. Nearly 12 million pinks were harvested last week, the second strongest volume for statistical week 35 in at least 12 years, according to Garrett Everidge of the McDowell Group. PWS led production with about 5.1 million fish landed, followed closely by Kodiak with 4.6 million fish harvested. This week, another 2.4 million pinks have been landed statewide as of last Wednesday. And to wrap the salmon landings up, coho landings doubled over the previous week, reaching 361,000. Chinook just surpassed its preseason forecast of a quarter million fish. The sockeye harvest was 180,000 over a week and a half. And a 1.5 million keto harvest brought that total to 54% of the preseason forecast. And finally, last week we covered the impact of sail drones and how they help NOAA's ocean surveys. This week, we take a look at how other technology may help scientists study fishing gear interactions and entanglements. So this was a really neat story that we covered here on Seafood News this week, and uh, I think it could provide a lot of insight for scientists in the commercial fishery, uh, fishing industry as a whole. Uh, one of the tough realities of commercial fishing is that fishermen and seals sometimes compete for the same fish, and when they do, interactions between the animals and fishing nets can occur, leaving fishermen with ruined catches and damaged fishing gear, and seals with the possibility of lethal entanglements. Scientists from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and the Center for Coastal Studies are documenting the behavior of seals and other animals in and around fishing nets just east of Cape Cod. 
The team has mounted an array of five underwater cameras across the top or head rope of Gillnet to, to get an unprecedented view of the encounters. They're also relying on the use of a remotely operated vehicle to periodically survey the nets. The ROV takes real-time video snapshots of activity below the surface to supplement the top mounted cameras. At times, scientists have struggled getting a solid view of the activity, but with the cameras mounted on anchor nets, they can assess what occurred underneath the surface. Once the nets are pulled up, the team examines the catch for bite marks and other visible injuries that may have occurred. Then the researchers review the video footage of any uh, depredation events and can later correlate the imagery with stomach content analysis data, if necessary, to verify what a particular animal was feeding on. Gray seals aren't always the culprit. Spiny dogfish and harbor seals are among the other predators known to scavenge from fishing nets as well. And currently, 100 hours of video footage have, is being analyzed. This footage can provide fishermen with potential measures they can take to avoid entanglements and any other costly interactions. I think this could be used almost across the board. I know obviously whales are a little bit bigger than right. seals, but there are a lot of entanglement efforts. So perhaps if this study seems worthwhile and the camera is helping assess damages and, and, and figuring out exactly. why why these um, animals are getting caught up or maybe what fishermen can do to, you know, not only save their animals, but make them more efficient, make their catches more efficient. Exactly. I if, think it could be pretty useful. It's so. probably just finding the time to review those hundred yes. hours of yeah. footage. <laughs> yeah. And next up, Lauren interviewed Chef Matt Ginn and they discussed everything Maine lobster. All right. Hi, Chef Matt. Thanks so much for joining us on the Seafood News Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So you have a pretty impressive resume. Um, on top of being executive chef at Evo Kitchen and restaurant in Portland, Maine, you're also a chop champion, which I must note Martha Stewart was a judge. So I feel like that honor is way more prestigious. Uh, and also you were, <laughs> and also you were 2015 Maine Lobster Chef of the Year winner. Is that correct? That's true. All very true. Uh, so we are extremely lucky to have you here on the podcast because September 25th is National Lobster Day, and we want to know how you will be celebrating this year. How am I going to celebrate? Well, my I have a new daughter who is one years old on September 4th. Oh, congrats. She's only had lobster. Thank you. She's only had lobster twice before in her life. So this might be kind of like the big... And she's getting her first tooth at the same time. So I think this time she's going to enjoy lobster more than ever before this September 25th. What uh, better way to celebrate? <laughs> uh, so what is your favorite way to prepare lobster? My favorite way to prepare lobster, I think, in, in short, would be seasonally. You know, and, and kind of a traditionalist at the same time. If it's summertime in Maine, I like nothing more than to have a nice lobster bake cook the lobster in ocean water with nice seaweed right from the water, make new potatoes and corn, and just enjoy it in the backyard somewhere. But at the same time, when I'm in my restaurant, one of the beautiful things about Maine Lobster is that it's great all year round. And um, in fact, this morning I was at a farmer's market here in Portland, Maine, and buying some nice, beautiful local melons. And tonight we're going to run a nice chilled lobster dish with chilled melon soup, some spicy peppers, and some really wonderful lobster seasoned with a little sea salt and sumac. So I think, you know, in one, one side of me being a guy from Maine, I love lobster um, done traditionally, but I also like the versatility of the lobster vibes, how I can cook it in a lot of different ways in the restaurant. That's very true, and I love that answer. 
Um, so something we talk about often on Seafood News Podcast is consumption and how some people struggle with cooking seafood at home. Um, now, what's cool about Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative is that they've released fact sheets that provide some information on not only handling and storage, but about how to cook lobster. So straight from a chef, what are some of your yep. tips for the people at home? Yeah, let me give you some, some pro tips. Um, first way, most easy way, if you have a pound and a quarter to pound and a half, which is my preferred size lobster, uh, and you want to cook the thing whole, a nice, beautiful lobster whole, cook it in seasoned water. Um, water, you know, I like to make it almost as salty as the ocean, maybe not quite, but seasoned water and cook it for about seven minutes. And seven to eight minutes, I think you're going to have a really wonderful, succulent, tender lobster. Um, and if you want to get a little more specific, another, my preferred way in a more professional setting is I believe that the tails and the claws cook better separately. So what I'll do at home often is I'll, is I'll kill my lobsters, just giving them a quick knife cut between the eyes, mm -hmm. and then I'll separate the claws and the tail. I like to cook my tail for about four and a half minutes in boiling water. And again, you can have fun. Have fun with the water at home. Sometimes I like to put a splash of white wine or garlic or bay leaf. Sometimes I like to season it up with a little paprika, almost like a like a crawfish boil style. And I don't think any of that takes away from the flavor of the lobster. Sometimes it's, it's only it enhances, especially with whatever application you're doing to the lobster. So if you're going to separate the lobster, I suggest that you cook the tail for about four and a half to five minutes and the claws for about seven to eight minutes. And I think you're going to really nail um, the specifics of what kind of like restaurant quality lobster tastes like, both from a texture standpoint and a flavor standpoint. That's great. I feel like it's a lot more of a simple process than, than we're all thinking it, it should be. Um, but that sounds yeah, simple I mean, enough. I prefer to boil it. Yep. I was going to say, I prefer to boil it, but you can steam it as well. And, and it is more straightforward than people think. And another underutilized, uh, underutilized part of the lobster is the body. You know, is that center console part of the lobster where the gills and the eyes are. And they make for a great stock and sauce. So, uh, again, for, for a more home cook, home chef enthusiast or hobbyist, maybe trying to make a stock where you're caramelizing the lobster body in some nice brown butter, a little bit of onion and fennel, uh, topping that lobster in a pot with a little water and tomato product really makes for a wonderful soup stock or, or sauce when reduced properly. That's great. And what about those who order lobster out? Are there any questions that diners should be asking about their lobster? I mean, uh, the one question that I would ask at, at a restaurant, especially if it's in a restaurant close to North Atlantic, is are you getting in lobsters live? Are you getting live lobster? I think there's no substitute for the quality of that product. And if not, are you, are, are you getting, you know, fresh frozen, fresh processed main lobster? I think those are important questions to ask. I think that the quality is going to be there far and away above any other lobster. Perfect. Now, speaking about quality, is um, I've heard a lot about new shell versus hard shell. Um, what's the difference there, and do you have a preference? Um, just like when it comes to preparing and cooking lobster, I think the preference is just in, in the moment. You know, I can go both ways because there's differences, but they both kind of have pros. Um, a hard shell versus a new shell is simply that. The, the lobster is going to have a very hard firm shell can be a little more difficult to extract 
the meat from the shell, the meat is going to be a little larger, a little firmer when you eat it, and in my opinion, just a little brinier. Whereas the new shell lobster is going to be easier to crack out of the shell. The meat itself is going to be a little smaller, and it's going to be a little more tender and a little more sweet. Uh, and it's a little more, the new shell is a little more seasonal and specific to the summer, whereas the firm shell main lobster is a little more accessible year-round. Uh, again, I think each one has its benefit. I like a nice new shell, um, probably in a more traditional setting or more traditional flavors, corn, tomatoes, butter, whereas a firm shell, I think you can get a little more flexible with uh, versatile with other ingredients, whether it be kind of a medium to light body red wine, uh, pork sausage and lobster, I think fantastic together. Um, we're using kind of a firm shell lobster in um, kind of a reheated preparation, maybe like a stock or in a sauce that accompanies other fish. That's perfect. Um, so that's great information uh, for all our listeners out there. We are all much more prepared to celebrate National Lobster Day thanks to you, and I look forward to seeing what's next for you, Chef. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And before you go, just let our listeners know your Instagram handle so they can follow along your beautiful dishes and gain some inspiration as they're scrolling along. Sure. My name is my Instagram handle is Chef Matt Ginn. Uh, on Instagram, and the restaurants that I cook at are Evo Old Pork and the Shibuya Onion. Well, thank you, Chef Matt, for taking the time to chat with all of us at Seafood News. We really appreciated that insight. And that's about going to do it for us today. Once again, this podcast was brought to you by Maine Lobster. Learn more about the history and sustainability of the Maine lobster industry at lobsterformaine.com. Mm-hmm.